Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pat with the Cast Right Catholic Podcast. We are doing an Advent series, walking through the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke, which corresponds to the first three joyful mysteries of the Rosary. The Annunciation, the first mystery is the Annunciation of the angel Gabriel to Mary, that God will become flesh within her. The Visitation of Mary with Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, and the Nativity the birth of Jesus Christ. So I gave an Advent challenge to our listeners as we walk through these talks. One, to pray the rosary every day, but at least on Mondays and Saturdays to pray the joyful mysteries. And then to read the scriptures corresponding to those mysteries, to delve deeply into the first few chapters of Luke's gospel. Then last week, we reflected on the prelude to those mysteries. We started where Luke does, the pregnancy of Elizabeth. And today, I want to do two things. First, I want to give a brief recap of last week's talk, sort of provide the spark notes. And then I want to dive into Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, which is the story of the Annunciation. So last week, we mentioned that there is going to be a particular focus on bodies. We are watching the choreography of the gospel unfold that God has written the story of salvation not only in our bodies, but with our bodies. The story is not pie in the sky, but becomes flesh, happens in real time in the world, and is written in, through, and with bodies. And so in the beginning, the whole story begins with the creation of Adam's body. And then the story of salvation is going to reach its summit in the exhausted and given body of the new Adam, Jesus Christ. But here during Advent, the woman, the female body, enters center stage in salvation history as the keeper of promise, the keeper of the promise. We talked about how this was true with Elizabeth, that she embodies literally in her body the truth of the human experience after the fall. Barren and advanced in age, she struggles to be fruitful, to be fully what she was created to be, what she feels called to be, what she desired to be. We talked about how she must have felt about her body. We wondered if she felt ashamed, angry, sad, disappointed, frustrated. This is a struggle so many of us have, not only infertility in the reproductive sense, but struggling to bear the fruit we believe God intended us to, struggling to live out the life to which we feel called, feeling frustrated and disappointed at ourselves, at our bodies, for our seeming inability to do the thing we feel called to do. Frustrated, sad, even angry that our life does not look the way we thought it would or thought it should, even our life as a Christian. But there was one really important point that we focused on with Elizabeth. She was faithful. Her name means pledged to God. And so in her barrenness, in her brokenness, in her advanced age, she experiences the invasion of grace. God's creative response to her fidelity. That through fidelity, ours to his and his to ours, 
He makes our barrenness, our brokenness, fruitful. The name of Elizabeth's son is John, meaning the Lord is gracious. And this graciousness, this fruitfulness, is that even our frustrated, broken, barren bodies are drawn into participation in his redemptive mission. By grace, acting in and through our fidelity and our perseverance, our lives, our existence is not some meaningless chasing after the wind, but our lives are meaningful, full of and infused with a meaning transcending our limited time here. And Elizabeth's participation is revealed as the keeper of the promises of God. Her body, the female body, emerges as the keeper of the promise, as the bearer of hope. And we discussed that some last week. You know, her son, John the Baptist, is the last prophet of the Old Testament. He's carrying the torch forward to pave the way for the commencement of Christ's ministry. But I want to dig into what this means a little bit more to set the stage for Mary, that the female body emerging as the keeper of promise, the bearer of hope. So two points. One, just generally, to have a child is an incredible act of hope. This dawned on me when my son was born. It is a statement that life is worth living and the future is a place worth going is to believe that time progresses to a beautiful and meaningful end and we must carry on. And secondly, the second point I want to make about that today has to do with the very meaning of Advent. So I realized I I probably should have talked about this last week, uh, but the word Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, meaning coming. In Advent, we wait for a coming. And what coming do we await? The coming of the fulfillment of promise. God makes promises. It's God's promises that are the driving force propelling salvation history forward. And so throughout salvation history, he makes promises to his people. To Abraham, he promises that Abraham will become the father of many offspring, more numerous than the stars. To David, he promises to make David's house and kingdom sure forever. Through the prophets, he makes promises to be our God. In Ezekiel, he promises to be our shepherd, to seek the lost, to heal the afflicted, to bind wounds, to mend the brokenhearted, to give us a new heart of flesh, to give us a new spirit, to breathe into our dry bones and our frail, seemingly failing bodies a resurrecting force that raises us to new life. And in Isaiah, he notes that this healing, this restoration will come through the stripes bore by the Savior's body. And so as the psalmist repeats over and over again, we wait for the Lord. This is the promise that Elizabeth keeps. This is the promise that is carried forward through John the Baptist. These are the promises that John the Baptist is going to awaken in the earth, the world. He's going to awaken the earth and the world to the reality of those promises' fulfillment. But before, before John is even born, 
while Elizabeth still bears this hope and carries this promise in her body. There is the Annunciation. The Annunciation to Mary. So Elizabeth embodied our broken barrenness after the fall, made fruitful through grace, acting in our fidelity and perseverance. And now Mary will embody something new. Elizabeth's body reveals fallen humanity, bearing the promises of God. Mary's body becomes the place of the fulfillment of promise. She becomes the bearer of a new and a greater hope. She becomes the place where promises are fulfilled. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, all God's promises are yes in Christ. Which means all God's promises are yes inside the womb of Mary first. Her body becomes the locus of salvation history's great turning point. Her body becomes the place of fulfillment, the place of meeting between God and man, where God and man collide in perfect reconciliation and communion. This is where Elizabeth's fidelity was leading. This was its definitive direction. This is, in fact, the summit of Elizabeth's fidelity. Mary reveals in her body not the fallen way of being human, even fidelity in our fallenness but a completely new way of being human. She is what we might call an eschatological sign. She shows us where we are all going. She shows us what we are all made for, not barren, but made fruitful, rather virgin, pure, and radically available to the action of God's creativity and movement. Elizabeth is the persevering fidelity of our fallen humanity. Mary is the perfect faith that says yes completely to God, who proclaims a great yes to her in Christ and to us in Christ. Yes, you will be made new. Yes, I keep my promises. Yes, I will restore. Yes, I will heal. Yes, I will seek. Yes, I will bind. And yes, I will establish an everlasting kingdom. Mary embodies it. Her body, the woman's body, is unveiled in Mary as the place of fulfillment. In the beginning, Eve was drawn from Adam's side, closest to his heart. She is drawn out of Adam's depths. Adam is crafted from the earth, and Eve is crafted from the depths of Adam. She is the depths of humanity, the depths of the earth. Her depths, her womb, were the place of God's creative activity. Psalm 139 says in a prayer to God, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And then also, you knit me in my mother's womb. She is the depths of the earth, the bearer of humanity's hope of abundance and available to God's creative action from the beginning 
where God would form his children. Adam, in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, is called son of God. And Eve is where sons and daughters of God would be created. And now in Mary, the depths of the earth are restored. She literally embodies the restoration of the depths of the earth. So, how does this happen? What's the story? Mary was in her youth, the time of dreaming about the future, of dreaming about our lives, a time filled with desires that run deep and give us energy and vitality and motivation day by day. And I think about this a lot, what Mary desired as a young woman, what plans she had for her life. Imagine on one level, she was obviously a deeply religious and devoted girl who, as many still do today, had a deep desire to be completely consecrated to God, a consecrated virgin. And on another level, I imagine she had an irrepressible desire to be a biological mother, to have a family, raise a family, teach her children, nurse them, care for them, play with them, watch them grow. Also a very normal desire. And yet the two would seem completely incompatible. And um, I relate to that because I know in my own life, I have similarly had lots of desires that tend to seem mutually exclusive of each other. Dreams about my life, feeling that I have to choose, priest or married, lawyer or teacher, law firm, nonprofit, so many directions. And I feel split in half by the multitude of my desires. And usually my response to this is to try to figure out a way to make it all happen. To try to take control of it and find a way to stitch it all together. But I am bracketed or I bracket the possibilities with the limits of my own understanding of the world. And then on top of that, What I tend to do and what I think we all tend to do is cling with anxiety most of the time to those various desires. And I console myself by remembering verses like Psalm 37, for the Lord will satisfy the desires of your heart. But we can become so desired-centered that we forget the first half of that same verse. Delight in the Lord and he will satisfy the desires of your heart. We forget that such God-centeredness refines our desires, purifies them. And we forget that God satisfies them as he refines them. That God satisfies them. And this forgetfulness that we have in our fallenness, Mary does not have. And despite whatever plans she might have had, whatever resolutions she might have formed, she has courage in the face of God's unexpected creativity, which so often demands a change of plans. And all her desires are surrendered to the desire for God's will, which she believes, which she believes will lead to fulfillment. 
and so six months after the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah, he appears the husband of Elizabeth. He appears to Mary, bearing God's creative response to her various interior pulls and desires, telling her you will bear the son of the most high. And how will this come to be? The Holy Spirit will come upon her and the power of the Most High will overshadow her. She will be the Virgin Mother. In faith, she believes Gabriel. Faith. What is faith? Um, We sometimes see faith in opposition to knowledge. Now, we're ready to defend faith and reason, and that faith is not contrary to reason, that our faith is reasonable. But sometimes we still think it is in opposition to knowledge, that it's something different than knowledge. But in truth, I believe faith is a type of knowledge. It is to believe the promises of God which teach us the truth about the life we are living. It is a certain knowledge about this world, our existence, obtained from the one who brought it all into being. It is a knowledge acquired through relational intimacy with God, with the lover of our soul who loved us into existence. Hardness of heart is to reject or at least resist the knowledge born from that relational intimacy. Faith assents. Faith gazes into the face of God, the eyes of a good father, the eyes of love, and trusts the word proceeding from his mouth, inhales the breath that carries that word. This Mary does. She inhales. I think it was St. Bernard of Clairvaux who said that at the moment of the Annunciation, all of creation held its breath, anticipating the response, this climactic moment in the movement of salvation history. And as all of creation holds its breath, Mary breathes. Zechariah, I've probably been too hard on him last week and this week. Uh, He is a good man, the scriptures tell us. He's righteous. He's a man of God. But in his fallenness, he has that hardness of heart that resists God's word. And I can't blame him. Gabriel announces to him the coming conception of John in Elizabeth. And Zechariah says, "How, how shall I know this? Or in other words, how can I be so sure? How can I be so sure when the knowledge that I have about my life and my circumstances and the way this world works seems to run contrary to that? How can I be so sure when my knowledge and my memory cannot understand, cannot comprehend? He resists the knowledge flowing from God's revelation. Something similar happens in the, in the gospel when Jesus is talking to the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection of the body and they challenge him 
with uh, a hypothetical scenario that presents a very messy reality and says, how could there possibly be a resurrection of the body if this is the type of messy reality that's possible in this world? And Jesus responds to him, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. But Mary inhales. I wonder what that moment was like when the Holy Spirit comes over her and the power of the Almighty overshadowed her. I wonder at it in the way that we can often wonder at the mystery of God's encounter of our neighbor. And I probably wonder at something inaccessible to me, the intimacy that happens in secret, that passes in hidden places between a soul, the soul of another person, and God. But when I wonder at it, I do believe that it happened in that inhale with those words that she speaks, let it be done to me according to the word, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. As she takes a breath speaking those words, I imagine it was a gentle, quiet, intimate, and interior experience, a subtle kiss filling her with peace. I imagine it as the fulfillment of Psalm 85, which is a psalm about revitalization and restoration, a psalm about salvation and the forgiveness of sins for which we wait, and a psalm that ends saying, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And Mary inhaling reveals the superabundance for which we are destined and created. When faith made perfect collides with God's loving creativity, a new life, his life conceived within us, the image of sons and daughters of God restored, she becomes a tabernacle, the place of God's presence. And this is, this is actually one more important observation we can draw from Gabriel's appearance to Mary. Gabriel appears um, three times in the scripture. So he, he appears to Zechariah at the altar of burning incense, which is a gold altar closest to the Holy of Holies in the temple, the place of God's dwelling. And he announces to Zechariah, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And then he appears to Daniel in the Old Testament to explain one of Daniel's visions. But Gabriel does so when somebody with the appearance of a man, whose appearance knocks Daniel to the ground, commands Gabriel to do so, whose presence is so powerful and who has authority to command angels. Gabriel stands in the presence of God. And then the third and final time he appears in scripture is to Mary. She is the new altar of burning incense. The altar of burning incense where Zechariah encounters Gabriel is the place where a Jew might most expect to see an angel who stands in the presence of God right outside the Holy of Holies. Mary is the new altar of burning incense. She is the new 
holy of holies, her body becomes that space. It becomes a fulfillment of promise. She is the place of fulfillment. So before I close though, there's one more angel I have to mention. One more person, a man who often goes unnoticed by most of us or forgotten, a man whose namesake, Joseph, the son of Jacob in the Old Testament, was put in charge of all the granaries, entrusted all the granaries of Egypt, and would then be able to give bread for the life of God's people because of that position. Yes, this man, this new Joseph, a carpenter, a descendant of the house of David, the David who was promised that his house would be established forever. This new Joseph, this son of David, is betrothed to Mary. He is going to be entrusted with the new granary where the bread of life is made manifest, the bread of life that will be given to the people of God. He's entrusted this new granary. And when he learns of Mary's pregnancy, he's prepared to divorce her quietly. But an angel appears to him, not at the altar of burning incense, but in a dream. And says, Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Joseph awakes And the Gospel of Matthew tells us, Joseph did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. And that son of David, that son of the house of David, became the foster father of the king of kings. Next week, Mary and Elizabeth, these two women taking center stage in the Gospel's choreography, will meet. And I hope you join me for it. But until then, this has been the Cast Right Catholic Podcast.